Now I'd like to introduce tonight's guest, John Prendergast. He is a human rights activist and author. He is co-founder of the Enough Project, an initiative to end genocide and crimes against humanity. Working for the Clinton administration, he was directly involved in a number of peace processes in Africa. He helped create the Satellite Sentinel Project with George Clooney, write two books with Don Cheadle, and developed documentary films on Congo with Ryan Gosling. He has appeared in four episodes of 60 Minutes and was featured in a New York Times profile titled Attention Grabber for Sudan's Cause. He has been a youth counselor, a basketball coach, and a big brother for over 25 years. He is author with Michael Maddox of Unlikely Brothers, Our Story of Adventure, Loss, and Redemption, and was on the Colbert Report last night. Please welcome John Prendergast. Thanks very much, Dulce. I like the last line. I get, I get to wring something out of that for another week or two, huh? I really have to admit that uh, the title of this event certainly uh, was a bit daunting to me. You know, can, can mentors save lives? It's a very high, high bar, tough crowd. You know, can't we just sort of raise the kid's grade from a math grade from a C to a B? Would that be not good enough for you? But that question mark just hanging out there uh, at the end, demanding an answer, you know, can, can we actually, tutors, mentors, big brothers, big sisters, can we save lives? At first, I, I panicked a bit, you know, I, I felt if I didn't have a list of like five kids who, who were saved through mentoring, I would just fail the test. I voiced, answer the question, John, answer the question. I'm trying, okay, I'm trying. But then I thought to myself, self, what does save mean anyways? Save is a very complicated, multifaceted term. You can save Darfur, save the whales, save your money, save your soul. And my favorite, save some room for dessert. <laughs> so these are all wildly different concepts. So now it's opening up a little bit here for me. Um, but when you tread onto the territory of, of one person actually saving another, whether they are a mentor indeed or, or a tutor of some kind or a big brother, a big sister, a teacher, or a friend or even a parent. When you tread on that territory, then we're er entering very tricky ground where even who is saving whom can become part of the question. Now, I couldn't begin to address these issues without acknowledging my co-author and brother for life, Michael Maddox, in abstention. He is a bus driver in Washington, D.C., and they wouldn't give him a couple of days off so he could come out here to Los Angeles. But believe me, I'm, I'm not standing here today talking to you uh, without his spirit uh, accompanying me in this room. But instead of, I think, regurgitating uh, the book, uh, which, of course, is Unlikely Brothers, available in the bookstore for a very reasonable price, I'm sure. Uh, instead of just retelling our story, um, uh, I, I wanted to reimagine it tonight for you. If I had to write it again, I could do it a different way. How would I do it? So I've come up with four chapters. Chapter one, fathers. Chapter two, brothers. Chapter three, wars. And chapter four, wives. It sounds like potentially a Dostoevsky novel or 
perhaps a recent episode of The Real Housewives of DC. It's hard to tell the difference anymore, isn't it, culturally? Chapter one, fathers. For any boy, I think a huge part of the beginning of your life, of course, a dominant part of your life is your father, good, bad, or, or, or ugly. Mine, my father was there part-time. Uh, Michael's wasn't there at all. My dad was a giant of, of a man, a real Pied Piper, a modern though, modern Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. As Dr. Jekyll, he was the greatest father in human history. Uh, an Irish storyteller with no peers, uh, a funny guy, a kind guy, a generous and very loving person. Kids, we would move around a lot when I was a young, when we were young, he, he was a frozen food salesman appropriately. And so we would, we would move from city to city uh, throughout my child and adolescence. And inevitably, within weeks of moving into a new place, kids would be knocking on the door, you know, asking, can Mr. P come out and play? That's the kind of guy he was. But Dr. Jekyll has a Mr. Hyde. And when the alcohol was served, darkness fell. Um, he was uh, at times very abusive, a rageaholic, if you will. Uh, and, and from my early adolescence till my mid-30s or late 30s, uh, I not only didn't speak to him, but I didn't look at him uh, during that period. Michael's father's situation was more complicated. A guy called Willie was, uh, his, was Michael's mother's husband and from the earliest period Michael can remember, he thought Willie was his father. Uh, and uh, they had a decent situation in which they lived in a house in DC. And uh, Willie, though, one day had a brain aneurysm and was in Veterans Hospital for some number of months. When he came home, he had no memory of who anyone was. And eventually he sort of wandered off uh, and, uh, and left the family behind. Um, when Willie left, uh, it was too much for Michael's mom alone, seven kids and, uh, and all these bills and just simply no way to cope. Uh, soon they ended up in the horrible underworld of Washington, D.C. and many other cities, you guys know it well here, of this, the homeless shelter system, uh, moving literally almost every other day from place to place during the 80s, Washington's Department of Social Services was, was just a uh, hollowed out uh, uh, agency that did not have a clue of how to uh, respond to human need and, uh, and people were, were uh, out there uh, basically striving on their own and they had all kinds of rules that made it difficult to establish some kind of a uh, semi-permanent uh, shelter. Um, Years later, uh, Michael learned that Willie was indeed not his father. Uh, he was in a room, Michael was, uh, with his family one day. There was a little party going on, a family party, a sort of reunion type thing. And in walks this guy uh, looking pretty sharp. And Michael says he feel, felt instantly, he knew instantly that was actually his father. And he got, he, the guy moved back in the house for like two weeks had an argument with Denise, Michael's, Michael's mom, and, and left again. Uh, the absence of that father 
uh, was crushing uh, to Michael growing up. Chapter 2, Brothers. It was when uh, Michael and his family was, were living in the shelters that I met him. I went to visit uh, a buddy of mine. I was still sort of an itinerant after moving so many times when I was young. I got to sort of build up a head of steam and just kept going. And so I ended up going to like five different undergraduate uh, colleges. And my first one was Georgetown. And I left, but I came back to see a buddy of mine who was running this homeless shelter uh, in D.C. And I was just, we were just hanging around talking. And into the room bounced uh, Michael and his little brother James at seven and six, respectively. I was 20 at the time. And uh, we hit it off like gangbusters, playing all kinds of games, ended up going to the library, tried to help teach him how to read, um, made it a regular occurrence, ended up becoming brothers. We, uh, the brotherhood evolved uh, over time. We would go to parks, we'd go fishing. Uh, they were big fishermen. Uh, and uh, we would go up to Philly a lot. Just weirdly, we would go to see, and I'd stay with my parents, not speaking to my father, and if there was any interaction between us, it was usually extremely volatile. And, uh, but yet they welcomed uh, Michael and whoever else, what other members of his family would come. Sometimes Michael would come alone. Sometimes Michael and his brothers James and David or his sister Sabrina would come, and they would stay. And eventually, at one point, uh, when social services got wind of the extent to which Denise, Michael's mother, was sort of off the rails, uh, they were ready to, they were told me they were ready to take the kids away uh, and split the family up. And so I um, took, uh, or I asked, obviously, Denise to see if it was okay and she was fine. I took Michael, uh, Sabrina, and James, the three oldest, with me to uh, Philadelphia where I was living. And they stayed with me for the entire summer. Uh, and this was my at the age of 21, where I should have had no business <laughs> having kids in my care. I, I remember some terrible nights of tempted cooking episodes and uh, frantic calls to friends saying, can you rescue us uh, from my latest catastrophe? But we became family. You know, We were actually, I think, family uh, at that point. Chapter three, wars. At some point over the next few years, though, uh, Michael and I lost each other. I was traveling uh, more and more. I had become, I had learned about what was happening in Africa uh, uh, in, uh, in the visual, first learned about what I thought was sort of what was going on in Africa. My first visual evidence was the um, pictures, early pictures of the Ethiopian famine. Uh, of 1983-85, and um, it hit me like a like a tornado, and I, I, I and full of all this sort of rage against injustice and unfairness as I was in my early 20s. I decided I have to go. I have to understand what's happening there, and I have to see what my government, the most powerful country in the world, can do about such a thing. So. I went and kept going and started working, living, working there in Africa. And uh, over years, I became a sort of a field hand, you know, doing human rights investigations 
and helping in peace processes and doing all this kind of stuff. Net result is I'm, I'm out of touch with the guys, with Michael and his brothers for large, long stretches of time. <clears throat> Michael, on the other hand, was entering soldierhood in a different kind of war in Washington, D.C. The war on drugs or the drug wars, depending on where you sat during that period of time. Now, how did that happen? How could the sweet kid like Michael become a big-time drug dealer in D.C. streets? Well, first, the father. The absence of father was just, was really, in, in retrospect at the time, maybe he was very uh, strong about not expressing his feelings, but in, now he can talk about it as being this void that was just utterly crushing to him. Second, I had basically let him down. I had largely disappeared off to my new career in Africa and, 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 uh, and in effect sort of abandoned him at, after we had built these bonds of brotherhood. And third, he was suspended from school for some alleged transgression in eighth grade and uh, basically never went back. And the school system couldn't care less. They just never checked. And uh, they didn't invest in at least a small effort at trying to, to, to find a way to deal with Michael. Fourth, uh, Michael's best friend when he was 12 years old uh, got shot in the face and killed right in front of Michael. And that had a devastating, numbing impact on Michael. And it sort of explains, again, in retrospect later, how violence became very routinized. And he was able to do some of the things that he did later when earlier he had, as a younger kid, had, had so abhorred violence. So everyone that matters either leaves or, or lets Michael down. But who's on the corner, you know, taking an interest, inviting him to belong to something? Of course, it's the neighborhood dealer. And it proved utterly irresistible to Michael. And that part, I think... I would urge you, I didn't write it, he did, you gotta read it. Because his version, that version of the book, his, his sort of trans, transition into this thing is utterly chilling to see how it happens. And, and, and for me personally, very heartbreaking to see the extent to which I let him down in his moment of need as his big brother. Chapter four, I probably like this one best, Wives. This chapter, I think neither of us saw coming uh, a couple of decades ago. Uh, we are probably we are not only unlikely brothers, but we were definitely unlikely husbands. Um, in, a, in, a, in a crucial moment uh, uh, for his life, Michael ended up uh, meeting a young lady named Nikki, uh, who has a heart of gold and a will I can tell you of steel, and it wasn't an immediate thing, you know. Like most guys, uh, Michael took a while to get his act together. But there's no question that Nikki's unwavering belief in Michael was a crucial ingredient in his transformation uh, and his redemption. And I don't want to give away his ending in the book, but it's a good one. <laughs> My version of Nikki goes by the name of Sia. After a long and torturous four decades, four decade walk in the emotional desert, 
Uh, I had the honor last month of marrying that young lady. Now that is one of the best stories of my life, but I have to save that for tomorrow night uh, because I'm going to speak in in Pasadena on what's now turning out to be a two-part series on saving lives. (laughs) And uh, I have this thing about not being able to give like the same talk twice if the same person is going to be in the audience both nights. So there's somebody in here, darn it, who let me know they were going to come to both of them. So now I got to save all these other stories. You bl- find that person and blame them for not telling the best story. I got to save something. Uh, but you know who you are in there somewhere. Um, but as for that emotional desert that I lived in for so long, you can imagine, you know, when you have a when you have an abusive childhood and and then then you you spend your your adulthood in, in war zones uh, and refugee camps, you're definitely going to have, I can guarantee you, issues with intimacy and commitment. But I can definitely say, and this is the interesting thing, that watching Michael and how he was with Nikki, and now Michael has five boys of his own. They live together in, uh, right outside of D.C. You know, and I, I was... Actually, I can tell you this though. The 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 I, I, we we started writing this book about two years ago, you know, and and I don't know, two years ago, two and a half years ago, and the uh, my first first draft, my you know, it's a dual narrative, so Michael's my Michael's my chapters, but my uh, first draft sort of ends with me concluding that you know I have that Michael has this extraordinary family life. I have no chance at that because of my past and background and sort of emotional disconnectedness. But at least I have a connection to him and his family so I can uh, sort of live almost vicariously and have a family life vicariously from that. You know, very kind of depressing. <laughs> then the next draft comes along and it's like, well, okay. Michael, added, you know, by this time we're having, you know, dinners all the time and we're spending a lot of time together and I'm like I get it he's doing it why can't I so you know was, there was a little hope sort of seeded in the midst of the of the sort of self uh denigration in terms of my own uh, aspirations and and self-belief you know I mean I, I just didn't believe that I was capable of that kind of a healthy and then the third draft uh the, the final draft is this the, the present which ends up where I find the girl. <laughs> and, and I find the girl because of another one of my little brothers, which again, you got to come to the Pasadena thing or read the book to find out about. But it sort of the lesson is join the big brothers or become a tutor and live happily ever after. Maybe. I mean, you could take that away from it. I'm just saying. So um, anyways, we got this, all this stuff going on. So for both of us, I think, uh, uh, these four chapters of our lives uh, have hugely impacted us, and, and I really think they're they're deeply intertwined. I'm going to come in for a bit of a landing here, so because I want you to, I don't know, talk for 40 minutes. I'd rather have more uh, uh, interaction and, and let people tell their stories or however they want to get 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 this uh, ball rolling here. But the next chapter, you know, that 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 begins where the book ends. Um, uh, obviously unwritten as of yet, but be, I think because of the brotherhood that has evolved between Michael and me, 
because of our wives, Nikki and Sia, because we have forgiven our fathers, both of us, his father, my father passed away two years ago, something like that, three years, and his father passed away like two months ago. And we've had, we've both gone through processes of grief and forgiveness that once you let that go, that extraordinary uh, 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 alteration in, in my outlook towards life and towards myself. So we know the next chapter somehow is going to be remarkable, but perhaps less bookworthy, maybe hopefully less bookworthy than the other ones were. But wait, the voice. Answer the question, John. Can mentors save lives? Um, I think if you ask Michael, he wouldn't hesitate in answering that even though I was absent, you know, for crucial stretches. And I, I kind of look at myself as sort of the anti-big brother, you know, as the as the as the the guy who like actually set the kid up and then whoosh, waltzed. You know, and I, I go around and talk to just you know conversations with people and and talk to them if it comes up, you know, this the work that I do on this stuff. And there, people mostly say, well. I'd, you know, I'm afraid that I don't have enough time or I'll let the kid down or something like that. <sighs> Poster child for not having enough time, letting the kid down, all these things. And yet and still, Michael has this belief that that bond of brotherhood, the seeds that were planted early, you know, when he was a little kid living in those homeless shelters and I'd take him off and doing all these things, going to the library, reading and all that stuff. And to both of us, very interestingly, the unconditional love that I had for him over the years, the belief that I had for him, in him, sorry, over the years when he felt no one else believed that he could amount to anything or do anything. Uh, that, to him, along with Nikki, made the difference in his redemption and his ability to escape from the clutches of that life that he had entered for a while in the streets of D.C. So that's what he thinks. And though I'm, I'm definitely sad and regretful about those, those, those lost years, I, I think I see his point. I think the seeds do matter, you know, that we can plant as people who care about other people. But, but if you ask me, you know, this question, I, I get stuck on that precedential question, which is, you know, I'm still not sure who is saving who in all of this. Um, when I was young, and I had a huge, huge hole in my heart and in my life, you know, just struggling to try to figure out my place, uh, deeply depressed about the experiences that I had had in my home life. And um, I had this, this, I was, Michael helped me fill that hole for sure. You know, and my investment in that relationship was something that benefited me, frankly. And, and when I was older, you know, he showed me how to be a committed father and husband, literally a roadmap of how to do it, and helped me see that this was possible for even the likes of a guy like me. So I don't know at the end of the day whether we saved each other or not, but I do know that we both played an absolutely critical role in each other's paths to redemption. Thank you for coming, and let's see what people have to say about all this. So is Michael still peddling pot? <laughs> Are you interested? 
because he 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 will make a deal. No, no, he's he's moved. <laughs> he's definitely moved on. He's he started out. Oh, this is a great part, you know, of his story, is when he did decide that he and made the pledge to his wife that he was going to, by that time hadn't yet married her, uh, was that he was going to leave the, the life. And he eventually got this job, you know, washing floors and tables at a, at a, at a local hospital, the children's hospital in DC. Um, you know, the, the, just every day he'd come, he'd come home, he'd uh, withstand sort of the, what he felt to be the indignities of that kind of a lowest rung of the ladder service job, the uh, every two weeks indignity of seeing a paycheck for an amount of money that he could have made in literally 10 minutes in, uh, in his prior career. And, uh, and then he sort of bumped his way up to being a candy machine fixer. And then he and I got him a, a loan for... Uh, uh, being a commercial uh, truck driver, and so now he's gotten this job, which is not a bad-paying job as a bus driver in D.C. In a, you know, in a private company, and, uh, and he's got dreams of starting a company. He's just, you know, he's taken off now. So uh, I doubt if he'll, uh, at this point, go back to the always, no matter how much money you wave in his face for that uh, <laughs> for that medical marijuana. Anyways. <laughs> I run a um, mentoring program, a big brother, big sister program for a residential treatment center in West LA. And I match people every day with my kids, um, community-based mentoring and residential-based mentoring. And absolutely, it makes a difference. And whether, you know, to tell people whether you do it for it's a minimum of a year commitment, but the fact that you've stayed in touch all these years, and even if you were out of touch for some years, um, some of my kids wouldn't be where they are today without the mentors, you know, and people they have had in their lives. So I just want to say thank you so much for, for what you've done. I've had nine now, little brothers, <laughs> over my lifetime. And the latest one is this young guy called Jamar. He lives in D.C., uh, and, uh, you know, this is the toughest one by far. He, 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 we would go, he's a big athlete, you know, so I get him when he's young and he, we start, it was about four or five years ago and we go to the gym or to the YMCA or we go play football or something. Inevitably within like the fourth or fifth play series of like the downs, if it's a football or, you know, up and down the court in basketball, Something happens. Either it could be as little as he misses a shot or the guy he's covering scores or maybe he gets fouled. Ooh, don't even try to foul. And then he just goes in. He would go into these rages and he would sit in like in the corner of the, you know, clearly, you know, just dealing with all kinds, the legacy of all kinds of uh, trauma. And so, and he doesn't talk. He didn't talk to me. <laughs> and and so for literally four years, it, Jamar probably said, I say a grand total of about 20 words to me. And, um, you know, when, when we first started, he was, you know, his grades were a wreck and he was a serious behavioral problem at school. Now, I am not going to claim that the Big Brother program, the formal Big Brother program, which you're talking about, did it all because his mother is just dedicated to him 
and he and other people pitch in but he he's now he just got a scholarship to a catholic high school in dc he's playing wide receiver for the football team starting in september he's going to play uh uh, point guard in the basketball team as a defensive specialist, which is just if you if I could tell you the story of why that's ironic, uh, you need a little while, but it'd be worth it. Um, and he is the most well mannered kid, but he just doesn't talk. And like it, like it's so hard for me because I'm so verbal, you know. Like, and I want to hear, I want all that affirmation from the kid, you know. Like, I want to play around and joke and laugh and stuff like that, and and see a my wife now is, you know, for, for the last year and a half, she's been in my ears. Just like, cause I was like ready to give up on the guy. Like he just, I felt like he just didn't care about the relationship. So like she's like, don't, he's just, if you leave, you're just going to prove his theory, you know, about people just hang in there. And it's true. Like I took him Saturday. What day is today? Yeah. Sunday. I took him out Sunday in DC. We, um, we went and played, we played one-on-one basketball play you know and he hangs in there the whole game and then then we go and we go afterwards uh to the to the nando's chicken you guys have nando's yet Whew. man oh man it's the south african chain they just they just invaded dc it's awesome anyways my life is altered um uh, uh, uh so he orders he there's the exact same stuff i order and he like eats it in the same order he's not like looking at me or anything he's not talking to me for sure <laughs> And then, like, like I'll, like, I'll finish and I'll put my knife a certain way. I'm just watching. Like, and he puts it there. And, like, I, and I put the napkin on the top. And, boom, he puts it. And we go. We go off to the dessert. We go to get ice cream at this other plate. He gets the exact same order. He's like, what do you want? I, I'm like, what do you want? He's like, you first. Like, that's what, he'll, like, he'll, like, glance at me. Like, that, that's, like, a huge, you know, emotional moment for us if he glances at me. You know? And, and, but, you know, you hang in there. The point is, my gosh, the, the, the blossoming of this young guy. Uh, and and um, and and the validation, you know, I've now started after reading this, after working on this book, I've started reading some of the literature. People have done, you know, longitudinal studies on the impact that this that these programs have of of where you invest in a, a mentoring or tutoring, and you know, especially these kind of big brother, big sisters, more structured deals. And the, and the impacts are, are crazy. I mean, you know, it's mostly all about self-esteem. You know, where kids, if you are, you know, believe in a kid and the kid feels that, that uh, makes all the difference. And like, so you see, you know, grades go up, you see incidents of sort of discipline problems go plummet, you know, like one index, indice, whatever the thing is, after another, you know, just... V- proving the point of these, the value of these kinds of programs. So I am not being paid by Big Brothers and Sisters. They're broke. Don't worry. They ain't got nothing to give me. But I definitely can refer you to academic literature that could state far more eloquently than I, that the, than me or I. See, I'm really grammatically all over the map here. Uh, uh, what the value is of these kinds of programs. Hi, my name is Bernadine Bednars, and you mentioned... Uh, the role of Michael's mother in his life and Jamar's mother, but you didn't say anything about the role of your mother in your life. Yeah, my mom, I, 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 talk, I call her, I mean, we're very close. I call her once, twice a day. For those Catholics in the room, uh, she is the, um, 
uh, sort of Saint Augustine, you know, uh, had his years in the in the wilderness, <laughs> and uh, you know his mother was just just prayed and prayed and prayed for that's her role basically. <laughs> she has been praying for me for decades, <laughs> and uh, you know the Rosary Posse, and um, and she does like I get mass cards in the mail probably once a me- week. You know she's very serious about it, and we. Uh, it was touch and go how she was going to handle uh, the, the, the wedding. Uh, that's a whole other story. But she, she showed up in her big flowery hat and, and had the best time. Um, she, uh, it's a, you know, because she's still here, um, not here, here, but uh, with us in this world. And I just, I sort of uh, went a little lighter on that. Um, she is, uh, and because everybody has stories and families, and, and I think she was, uh, she had her way of doing things, and it was hard for her because my dad, as a frozen food salesman, was gone most of the time, and my brother and I, Luke, uh, were were very, uh, you know, we were kids and we were just like getting everything and causing all kinds of trouble. So she's one of these uh, wives that and mothers that uh, were alone most of the time that was alone and so um it was was tough for her and um so i i you know but i i'm i'm a mama's boy like i'm really close to her and i uh she's a right-wing zealot good for her (laughs) i'm a a wildly left you know so we just have every once in a while we have these raging you know uh summit meetings about social economic policy, but then we sort of retreat to our corners and uh, occasionally sh- shoot daggers, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but generally speaking, we're, we're very close. And she had a, she, you know, she's like Michael's mom. With all the, you know, the warts that every family has, it's Michael's mother sort of dragged him along the street, you know, with those hefty bags. And my mom, you know, I have great moments of sort of fragmentary memories of uh, my hardest times, you know, I mean, there's a war with my dad, you know, and, and, and as a little kid and, and throughout adolescence. And though she uh, stayed fairly neutral in the, in the heats of the heat of the moments, um, she was, she would circle and, uh, and was very loving uh, and compassionate. And I feel like that, again, talking about seeds, those were seeds that were planted in me that I think still germinate uh, on, on occasion. And um, so I, I, thanks, thanks for asking because she's a, she's a big, big part of the whole story too. Great book, first of all. So I read it. It was beautiful. Um, I wanted to find out from you, um, just knowing you, um, how it affected Michael in terms of your work in Africa, like when you would come back, or, or any of the little brothers that you mentored, because you've done such great work in Sudan and Congo, and especially with what's happening in southern South Sudan now. Because I imagine that, you know, even though it's very different from the world in DC that what you do, um, sort of in a, on a global basis must that, you know, that you talk about it with them. And so I'm just curious whether it's Michael or another little brother that you've worked with, how have they, how maybe has it affected their lives in, in ways or opened their eyes to? For many years, <clears throat> I, uh, compartmentalized this, my different parts of my life in a really 
unhealthy way. So I had my Africa work and commitments, uh, which uh, I kept over here. And when I come back, you know, um, I, I felt very early on that it was really hard for me to talk about these things just uh, uh, to, to the people that I would interact with. It was just impossible for me, at least in my at that point in my maturity level to be able to express the kind of things that I was seeing in a way that sort of one could have a conversation. So I just said, you know, I'm just going to tamp it down and not talk about it. And um, certainly that was the case with the kids. I mean, I rarely referenced the stuff. Um, I didn't know how to talk about it. I had no vocabulary for it and um, emotional or literal. And uh, so I just kept it uh, separate. And they basically knew that I was off, out of the country, lions and tigers and bears, and uh, in Africa somewhere, and came back and I, uh, you know, I'd sort of swooped back in to their lives. But it was really not until more recently, as they've become adults, where, uh, where they take a really deep interest. And I've thought a lot about you know, in the course of the next couple of years, having some kind of a, a, a trip where I take a bunch of the guys with me to, uh, to a place somewhere yet to be determined in Africa where we can sort of, they can see firsthand uh, what, what kind of stuff that I've been seeing and doing all this time. So I've thought about that a lot. But um, I think it, the kind of work that I've done sort of helps, you know, open windows for them a little bit to think more globally about things and we I don't push I'm not a well, sounds uh hard to believe but I'm not ter a terrible ter I mean, I'm a proselytizer in my big brother <laughs> uh uh mode for sure I might be when I'm out on the stump trying to tr whip up support for this legislation or that peace deal but but on uh, but in terms of those relationships I I never have been inserted them so much into the into the whole world that I've lived and worked in, but I'm thinking about how to do that, and uh, it, it just seems so disconnected. But I, I, I that chapter is still in formation in terms of having some kind of a an adventure with those guys and going over and, and and doing some stuff, mixing, you know, going in to see what really I've been doing, and then sort of going and seeing some of the beauty of the continent as well. But thank you for reading the book too. I have done some work with Friends of the Children, uh, helping them tell some of their stories. You're familiar with the organization? Uh -huh. and, and when you were talking about the value, the seeds planted by the commitment, and your, of course, time when the commitment, you know, faded, um, Friends of the Children pays people to spend four hours a day, 52 weeks a year, from first grade to they graduate high school. Any thoughts about that model? Don't sit down. What's the, what have they found in terms of the impact? Oh, of absolutely. The stuff that you're, I mean, the same kinds mm -hmm. of stuff you're talking about. Um, and, yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and when I've talked to people and interviewed people, what I find is they say it was the consistency. Mm -hmm. I, I ask people when I'm writing stories, I say, tell me, you know, a Hollywood moment. I might not say it that glibly, but I basically give me that aha moment, you know, with those revelation moments. They say, you know, these are mentors who mentored for 10 years, yeah. right? I don't, it doesn't happen that way. 
It's a moment by moment, and it's the consistency over the years that seems to make the most difference. The, 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 the studies that I have read in the, in the literature does validate that very strongly, that you know, if, if, you're, if you go in only a really short time and then sort of tail off, that that actually can be worse because a kid, again, you get the expectations and boom, validation of the worldview that people will never be there for you and you're not worth them being there. And so that is the worst uh, thing that can happen. Um, I think, and, and, and if t enough time hasn't been invested up front that the relationship can take that hit, then it, it can be devastating for a kid. So, um, but the, sorry, to validate then, the, the longer the, these relationships are maintained, the more positive benefits come in measurable terms in terms of school performance, delayed, uh, you know, all the other kinds of index. There it is again. Um, so, um, uh, but here's a just interesting. What, who who are the people that that are that qualified to be paid? Is it just any volunteer, or like is it is it like a hourly wage, or what? How do you well, how does it work? Uh, oh, I'll tell you. Um, it's they do have to go through. They have to qualify, mm -hmm. and then they have to go through training and so on. But it ends up being, what will happen is you will end up having eight that you will spend four hours with a week. So you'll have. And, and it will be, and you'll make about $50,000 for doing that. Over eight, a, over a 12 years. Year. Over yeah. a year. Yeah. Yeah. So the, each kid costs about 8000 I think, is the cost. But, of course, you put it against homelessness, crime, all those things. The investment is really, really worth it. Um, one thing that happens is sometimes people will have to leave after four or five years, but someone else comes in. <coughs> That, that's, the, that's the one thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, and people end up doing it for some of them. And I spoke to one woman who has done it for like 14 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, I, I, I would not, I think the, the point is, the, the, more, the most valuable point is the, the long-term relationships that some of these different kinds of programs, paid or unpaid, uh, make. Uh, and I'll just use that as a springboard to make another point that perhaps is just a little more policy slash political, and that is that in this moment wherein you would literally have to have your head in the sand to believe that we're not going to see a hemorrhaging in social programs uh, over the next decade in, uh, at the federal, state, and municipal levels, um, the impact that's going to have on, on, uh, on services to children and, and especially, you know, not only within school systems, but then sort of the ancillary services that address some of the issues related to prevention uh, that we all care so much about. I don't know where that money is going to come from because their constituencies are not strong for those things. Therefore, my zealousness uh, about, and I'm sure yours as well from what you just said, about a program or any program that voluntary or somehow remunerated that can uh, that can not take the place of government's role because government has a role in providing that social safety net and and in you know and caring for those least fortunate in our society but supplementing and you know addressing some of the holes in that safety net uh, and in a way that 
is the cost effectiveness is just shocking. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, uh, I don't not care one way or the other if somebody's paid or not paid, but you know, like, I don't know, the Big Brother, Big Sister program has probably spent a hundred bucks on me in the course of the last 25 years, you know, with all these kids. And I, you know, I, I don't know, we could go through each one of them. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's an amazing uh, uh, cost-benefit analysis that one would uh, conclude. Uh, and so I think that it is one part of a much larger part of the com our communities, our community, all of us as part of the community and the response that the communities will have across this country to the um, to this hemorrhaging of, of social service delivery uh, that is inevitable, and uh, and I feel like we have to step up. I hope that uh, we have a sort of Kennedy-esque moment uh, nationally where people realize that there is. Um, what you can do for your country, blah, blah, blah. What can you do for the people, uh, you know, and uh, uh, that, that need it, that need help, need a hand, just a hand sometimes, because that's all it really is, you know. You're just holding your hand out there. Sometimes they'll take it, sometimes they won't. And, um, and we'll have that kind of leadership here because it's, it's not going to come from the state at this point, uh, from the government. So we... And churches are crucial too, but they have all kinds of programs like this. That's they have tremendous investments in these early childhood programs and stuff. So I mean, it, it takes millions of different forms, and every community can have their own way of doing it. But we have to step up to be part of that response, whatever it is, through whatever social organization we feel most comfortable with. Hi, I'm Claudia, and. This is going to sound like a planted question, but it isn't. Um, I've actually been interested for a long time in becoming a big sister, and I was always sort of afraid of, A, I have a night job, and B, um, the time commitment. Mm -hmm. Is it? Can you tell us a little bit about what the actual program entails, and does it have training? It's pretty light. You know, it's, it's just you go and there's some kind of a background check because they want to make sure... Uh, folks that are going into the program don't have like ma massive police records. You don't appear to have one. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, the the requirements, you know, I, I, they they have stuff on paper. But every single big brother and big sister I've ever talked to like works their own thing out because everybody's got a situation like you're describing. I got to work at night. I got funny hours. I'm obsessed. I'm at the beginning of my career. You know, I'm going to school or whatever the heck it is. So, you know, if, if the, the piece of paper says, you know, it's an hour a week or two hours a week, then some people were like, well, I can't do that, but I could do like, I could take the, the, the little uh, brother or sister, like alternative Saturdays for the afternoon and spend sort of a four or five hour period, you know, and you know, that it's just establishing some form of regularity that works in your schedule. You want to integrate them more into your life than sort of bifurcated or sort of stovepipe it. Like I think the the one of the values, I mean I, this is my view now I'm steering I don't have a script from them and I don't know what their script would say, but I certainly believe what I'm about to say irrespective of if it's like not if it's the not the big brother's big sister's belief, but that that you know having not just not just sort of going somewhere and doing something like go to a movie or go to 
it's out to eat or whatever the heck you're going to do or go to play or go to park, but rather like, you know, integrating them into your life so they can see, you know, the kind of stuff you do and that you value them enough that you're not like taking them off to the side, but you're like bringing them along. So I'm not just, you know, I used to have the kids, they stay with me, go to my job and do all kinds of stuff. It's probably a little extreme, but <laughs> you know, you might want to consult some of my past employers and about the, but you know, they, boy, the people would just flock to them and they had a blast and the memories. They remember all these people. Like you ask Michael now, he'll tell you about these different jobs that I've had and the people that were like so loving and kind to him. Anyways, so I would say to not be daunted by anything you read in any one of these uh, sort of guidelines for whatever program, whether it's church or tutoring or school-based or or this kind of big brother, big sister program. Because at the end of the day, once you have gone to the training and everybody's giving you this sort of party line and then you go off and you have the relationship with this wonderful little girl that you're going to be matched with because now I'm sure you're going to go do it, um, you'll just figure it out. And like maybe she would rather, you know, have a certain pattern of, of interacting. And then it just sort of evolves on your own time. But I would, I would definitely not be worried about the, the constrictions of uh, the guidelines that are presented. I think you just, you'll just find your own way. And, um, and if, you're, you know, if your schedule is, is such that it just makes it really hard for you to do the weekly thing, then you just, yeah, like I did that the first, like I told the Jamar's mom, I was like, cause it's their choice. You know, you go in and like, you don't have to like, you're not get forced. It's not like a forced marriage. You know, you like, you got choice. So the kid meets you, you meet the kid and you're like, are you, is this the right thing? And, and, and I talked to his mom and I was like, yeah, look, I go off, you know, I go off to Africa on these trips and I'm gone. But I, when I come, I'll be like all over the place. We can do a lot of stuff. It was you know, a weekend, do all kinds of, but I'm definitely going to be gone for periods of time and like completely in, gone because I go into these places where there's no comms. So, you know, and they, she was like, that's cool. And, uh, <laughs> okay. And so, you know, I just feel like there is a way to adjust to everything. So that's my little motivational speech. I hope it worked. <laughs> Did it? Uh, well, if you've got follow-up questions, please. Reception, follow-up now, whatever it is, I'll, I'll be glad to uh, try my best. And maybe there's better people in the audience that, are, that could help target her. See her up there. Trap her afterwards. Get the forms out. <laughs> you talked a little bit about Jamar, and uh, and I've got one too. He's he's seventeen. How how do you deal with it when you just know he thinks you're a dick? <laughs> because you know, I, I I there are times when I struggle with you know with my own feelings. I like I'll call my I'll call my guy up and be like, hey, so Saturday afternoon, and like one time he gave me yeah, I got to check my schedule. <laughs> Who are you, Usher? You don't have a schedule. You don't have a car, man. Come on. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm constantly reminding myself, it's not about me. It's not about yes. me. Just if you'll spend a minute talking about how you process, you know, when the frustrations come up. Yeah, I, I needed a lot of help with this, too, because I'm an egomaniac. And so you just like, you know, any questioning of you wouldn't want to spend time with me. <laughs> what do you mean? Um, 
So, so I think that, and Sia again, back in my ear is really helpful. Like I think the, so a lot of times these young guys, they're going to, and I don't know about the girls, but the young guys are really test you, you know, like, are you really there? Like, you know, and so they, they back up a step and see if you walk away, like they expect you to, you know? And so, uh, and it's all this dance happens without ever mentioning, you know, like without the ever verbalizing any of it. And so I, I found again, because of Sia, I couldn't see it. Um, uh, these patterns of what he would do to, to sort of shove and then see what my reaction was. And, um, and I took the bait at first, you know, like I was like all up and I was worried. Like I was thinking maybe I need to take time off from the thing and give them, you know, show them I'm serious and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I just sort of calmed down and all that. And, uh, and, uh, and then I just go with the ocean, whichever the current is flowing. I just go with it. If he don't want to talk, I just, I'll do my monologues. And every once in a while I hear him stifle a laugh and I'm like, ha, he's listening. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, uh, and I put out, like, I'll put on music that he, you know, the, I know his favorites, you know, not that he tells me I got to get it from his sister, or his mom and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and I, and just, just de-emphasize, well, I'm just saying the same thing you are, just de-emphasizing my own ego and needs in the relationship and really just trying to make it him the center of it. And uh, that's sort of my role, I feel, as a big brother. And uh, But what? tell me your strategies, because I might learn, I'm sure I will learn something from how you deal uh, with it. You know, I... Um I'm constantly trying to remind myself, and I got a lot of help from the, the the great people in the organization that I that that I do this through. They're called the Fulfillment Fund. It's an LA-based organization, and um, it is. It's about taking the 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 evil little monster that is my ego yeah. out of it. But a lot of it is tied tied to you know my worry, you know, for him. He's you know he's 17. He's six two. He's handsome and charming, and he kind of knows it. But he <laughs> but he's also you know he's African American. He's from a single parent household. He, he and you know he lives in a in, in kind of a rough neighborhood. He's got f- concerns that I I I don't have. Um, so I I think I've tried to stop worrying as much. And when I do have those worries, I talk to the the I go to the, the specifically the person who's there to you know, help me through it. And I, I'm, um, yeah, I think I, like the, I think the worry is about me mm-hmm. too. So that I, I, I just recently put my finger on that and just <laughs> trying to, you know, he, yeah, he, 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 you're lucky. Mine openly makes fun of me. Like in, <laughs> in my car, it's like, really? But I just, you know, you just take it and just know that if, if he's gotten in the car, I guess that's a good sign. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, but we need a, like a Big Brothers Anonymous, you know, yeah. to like tell all our stories yeah. and get it all out and then we can go take, take the hits. But yeah, his mom texted me like two nights ago and said, you know, like, it's so interesting. You're like the only person, he stays in the house Goes to practice his sports, you know, goes to school a lot, but stays in the house. And he's like, you're the only person who'll go out. And I'm like, what? Because I'm like the last person I think that he would think that, that I, I, let me see if I can do that again. I'm the last person that I would think he would want to spend time with. <laughs> so uh, so it, it's, it's, been a, it's been a road. Um, 
Yeah. So I think um, it's really uh, is is a is a you know an investment in a in a philosophy almost of of uh, of other other centeredness and how beneficial will that be for our uh, other relationships in <laughs> in our life uh, uh, because you really have to do, take out you know the 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 I in it uh, and uh, and try to invest in in, in him and I so I. I've, I, I've gone through that in a very interesting cycle. It sounds like you're in the midst of, and I'm still in it. I mean, sometimes I still want a heck of a lot more from it, but it's, uh, but it's, you know, it's working. Michael, on the other hand, never had a worry. Boy, that's that moonbeam of a smile that he has, and the guy just felt, you know, when I was when he was young, uh, we we just were thick as thieves and bonded and stuff. So. And I think that, you know, that, that just makes it a lot easier, doesn't it? You know, if you get that kind of affirmation that's, oh, my, my last point then, I was trying to remember, did you notice the last 30 seconds I was just rambling while I was <laughs> trying to remember, I knew I had a point, I knew I had a point. Uh, you know, I can't just, I don't know what it is, and I have to think a lot more about this so it don't sound so, you know, sort of ch- chicken soup for the solars. But, uh, but, but this concept of unconditional love it seems to be at the heart of what success can come from these kinds of things because you know if 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 they if the young ki- young ones can believe that someone believes in them and someone cares for them someone loves them for who they are and like you know isn't judging the heck out of them and uh constantly after them and you know, not to say you can't correct, not to say you can't issue, give your opinion, but but that they, if they believe that, and they can internalize that, the the transformation that can occur in them to feel loved, to feel that they can be loved. Um, I'm, I'm, as you can tell, a little squeamish about the word save, you know, but I do think it is potentially transformative, and that every one of us has that ability I think you wouldn't otherwise be here you know have that somehow in your in your heart and so giving that whether it's a formal program or informally to to someone uh is something that that I mean it just it can literally change the world one person at a time so there it is that's what I have and thank you for what you're doing